John, there appears to be a cow in your room somewhere. He said boo, not moo. It's more sort of sheep, really. So in this episode, John makes animal noises. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very 102nd episode of Octothorpe, a podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 1st of February 2024. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. Glasgow have opened their hotel bookings and Hugo nominations processes. That is just a public service announcement. You also might not have got an email because they've had continuing problems with actually getting emails out to people um so lots of people are saying that their glasgow emails are going into into holes if this has happened to you obviously check your spam but also all of their information is on their website and their facebook page so they have got it out in other routes yeah i never got an email about hotel booking opening but i did get the hugo email twice yeah i am getting most of the emails two or three times so that's i guess that's good it's better to receive an email twice than none yeah, I mean, it's a good job that I am paying attention to their other social media because otherwise I would not have known, like, hotel bookings are open. I mean, I'm staff, so I was sort of right, fine. And also on hotel bookings, and indeed this happened to me and I forgot to mention it, when I tried to book, there were only bookings available for double rooms. So if you needed a single or a twin in many of the hotels, you had to book a double and then go talk to the convention booking people. And I think that is still the case in some circumstances. So if you if you go and look at your site, look at your hotel and they have doubles, but they don't have other sorts of rooms, do try that. I assume there were no single rooms, to be honest. I assume everything is just like a double, but for single occupancy, for which you do get like a fiver off. I think that's right. But there are twins. And they may not be twins now because twin is, we are, we use a lot more twin rooms than, um, than the general public, so there's often a shortage of twins. And we have some letters of comment. Christopher J. Garcia wrote in to say, I win, victory! So yes, yes he does. And he says he is hoping to be at Worldcon. Uh, But who knows with this crazy world? I don't... I I don't know with this crazy world, Chris. That's the short. That's the short answer. So yes, but um, but yeah. Thank you very much for writing in, Chris. Chris also spends an unreasonable amount of time talk, staring at the Octothorpe logo, which I very much appreciate. Anyone who is a fan artist appreciates it whenever anyone spends lots and lots of time staring at a piece of art. What they did, um, it makes you feel like Michelangelo or something. Uh, and the campaign to get the Octothorpe logo painted on the Vatican starts here. It, Sistine Chapel's due for an overhaul, right? Anything else on Chris, or shall we move along? I think I am still technically a member of the Catholic Church, but maybe that's the sort of thing for which they would excommunicate you. So we had a fantastic letter of comment from Bill Higgins, who listened to our episode where we played If We Ran the Zoocom, and we said, if you have been in any of these scenarios, please write to us. And Bill said, I know what this scenario is. So Bill knows who the 12-year-old in the games room was. And we'll link to his Wikipedia page in the show notes. Um, But, you know, Bill says he went to a convention, uh, Windicon, in 1978, and shared a room with friends who'd brought along a new student called Dallas Egbert. And he doesn't remember a lot about his conversations with him, but he seemed nice. And then it turned out in 1979 that uh, Dallas Egbert had disappeared from campus, uh, that he was possibly a troubled genius, 16-year-old, studying computer science. He was a big fan of D&D, and maybe he was hiding in the labyrinth of steam tunnels below the campus. Apparently he was missing for months. His parents did indeed hire a private detective who wrote a book about the disappearance and this turned into lots of newspapers and TVs trying to explain D&D and why it might be the sinister mystery and why this teenager had gone missing. Yeah, and the detective did in fact send people to look for him at the NASVIC in Louisville. I remember this story in real time because when it happened, it was the thing that took D&D from being a weird cult game that only a very few people played to something that enormous numbers of people played. It was fab- it was it was fantastic publicity for the hobby, even as people were going, "Oh, it's all a tool of Satanism." 
Yes, and I I knew that there were rumours about D&D as a tool of Satanism, and I mean, it's a plot point in Stranger Things, but I didn't know the exact reason why, or that it overlapped with this particular scenario. So yeah, it was really interesting. And you can, in fact, get this Private Detective's book still on Kindle for about three quid. So I might have to pick it up and, and read it and find out more. It was brilliant to just get a letter saying, we were kind of like, if you have been in these scenarios, let us know. And I thought we were going to hear about like the snake that was in ops. But uh, no, we heard about one of the other scenarios. So thank you very much, Bill, for writing in. More letters like that, please. We also heard from Raj on Mastodon, who said that he was sorry that Pudding.cool doesn't contain delicious desserts, but he was losing a chunk of time browsing the articles, and he also wrote in with the things he enjoyed from 2023. If you read, consumed, listened to other things in 2023, please continue to send them in because we will discuss them on a future episode. But thank you very much for sending them in, Raj. We had a letter from Colin Murtar, first long-time listener, first-time writer, who wrote to say that, as we knew but probably didn't mention last time, Poor Things has been made with the absolute love and support of the Alistair Gray archive. So although it isn't set in Glasgow, it is absolutely awash with um, Alistair Gray features and is a very faithful rendition of the book, I understand. And also says that they loved Why Don't You Love Me? But when it came out in hardback, went all over Manchester trying to buy a copy and couldn't find one. Oh, and every comic shop in Liverpool and every comic shop in Manchester, even after the book had been spotlighted by in The Observer. That's possibly why, the, as a result of the book being spotlighted in The Observer, Colin. Um, and indeed, also... M- mentions ducks by Kate Beaton and and says these important works aren't necessarily picked up and and um supported by comic shops which I think comic shops can't do everything it's quite hard business running a comic shop possibly a lot of people who go to comic shops aren't really interested in actual novels in graphic novel form I don't know Uh, I have been lent a copy I think I read the copy of friend of the show Alex Ingram who also sent us a letter about why don't you love me saying it was originally published in um, Aces Weekly. Yes Colin also read it on the website as it was coming out um, so I was wrong when I said I didn't think it would be published that way it obviously had. Yeah so Aces Weekly is the online magazine from David Lloyd so it was originally designed for screen not for printing. And I don't know if that means it's not eligible for a Hugo because it was previously published. No, the way it works is that if it was never previously nominated, it's nominated in the year it's collected. That's why um, Wheel of Time was nominated as a compilation when it was because none of the previous installments had been nominated separately. I think so. But comics can be weird about when an arc is deemed to have ended, can't they? To the was for Constitution, Liz. It's not like we're going to be doing that at all this week. I can't believe I don't have it open already, to be honest. Shall I quote the bit of the Constitution? Oh, yeah. Best graphic story or comic, any non-interactive science fiction or fantasy story told in graphic form appearing for the first time in the previous calendar year. But that's the same wording as novel, right? No, best novel just says a science fiction or fantasy story of 40,000 words or more. It doesn't have that appearing for the previous time in the first calendar year bit, weirdly. Well, all right, let me, let, me, let me reconstitute my argument. Digger was eligible as a single work. Oh, yeah, fair dues. I mean, I, I think we always nominate graphic novels in the year the graphic novel comes out, yeah, rather than all the time it appeared on the web individually, I think. It would be interesting to have a look at this in future, though. That is, I didn't realise, I just assumed comic was the same wording as novel, but with comic instead of novel. And it is interesting that it's not. I can't remember if we've kind of, this has been treated as weirdness of if like, you know, the comic with six issues and the last one comes out in November of one year and the collection comes out in February or whatever. Ah. Karen sends us congratulations on our 100th episode. Thank you very much, Karen. Thanks, Karen. And says, have I mentioned that I host a little free puzzle exchange on my front porch? It's a great way to print play catch and release and that is i assume jigsaw puzzles because we know from past that karen likes jigsaw puzzles he sent us a photo which we might stick in the chapter art maybe i think it is jigsaw puzzles because if you zoom in on the picture it's a picture of lots of jigsaw puzzles it is indeed and and 
the thing about this is that jigsaw puzzles is a great way to do this because in fact my whatsapp group passes jigsaw puzzles around at at great rates because lots and lots and lots and lots of people like jigsaw puzzles my jigsaw's bringing all the boys to the yard and they're like it's better than yours we've told you about rapping and singing on the podcast before john I am a little bit sad for reasons that will become clear. I can't prolong this. I told you so as much as I would like. But we heard from various people on the subject of PicoCon. Basically, it turns out that at the time we recorded, PicoCon was not set in stone. It is now set in stone. I did put a pickup in the show notes with the date. But yeah, so we heard from a couple of people who basically said when they were at university, the bookings for the student union space didn't open until after Christmas. Um, and so it may be that that is true for PicoCon. The only the only actual primary source we have is Exeter University. Uh, thank you very much to Jersey Griffin for writing in. And then also Edward Moreland wrote in to disagree with me. Um, so Edward says he feels like Tears of the Kingdom is going to lose out to Baldur's Gate 3. And I had not considered that possibility, but a lot of other people have also said that to me, Edward. So I think you are in good company with that opinion. It will be interesting to see which one wins. Also, I hope it means I get a free copy of Baldur's Gate 3. Come on, Hugo Voter Packet. Probably not. It, require, it depends who's doing the Hugo Voter Packet and when they're, whether they're prepared to spend a vast amount of time currying favour with games companies like I, like I did for the sample one. I was hoping to set a precedent, though, but we did get a lot of games. You did? No, it was good. Do you think they will also send me a PlayStation 5 so I can play Baldur's Gate 3? I think it's unlikely that they will send you a PlayStation 5, Liz. I, I, I uh, regret to re- report. So we also heard from Tobes Valois, long-time listener, first-time writer, who said, I am looking forward to the next episode of Octothorpe, as I assume you'll be covering the Hugo controversy. And thank you for pointing us at that, Tobes, because we were like, well, we were just like having a relaxing week. We were like, what is this Hugo? And then we looked at the internet, we were like, oh no. Since Tobes let us know about the Hugo controversy, Liz has been doing a lot of work to understand exactly what's been going on and why. And she now fully understands everything that's happened and will summarise it now. I, I just want you to know how serious I am about this. I've actually put down my crochet for this bit. Um, can, I, can I just check? Liz, on a scale of one to ten, what would you say is your full understanding of what has happened? What do you mean on a scale of one to ten? I'm missing something. I don't think it's actually possible to fully understand. I don't think there's a person on the planet who fully understands what's happened. Oh, I see. This is one for Rob Hansen, 2062, to, to unravel. I fully comprehend the mysteries. I am going to try and summarise the current thing that's going on with the Chengdu Hugos. It might take me a little while. If you have already been reading, like, the internet for the past week and a half then you may skip to the next chapter, which is a good bit and has Marvin in it. Reference acknowledged. We have known for some time that Chengdu have to release the full Hugo nomination stats within 90 days. And 90 days was last Saturday. And they did, in fact, release the full nomination stats. Hooray! Oh no, we have questions though. There was a brief period where we thought the most controversial thing was that it has taken 91 days. And that was a glorious 12 hours that I miss. I actually said in a place I won't reveal online, what if the stats are a big letdown now and they're just not interesting? Wow, I wish I was in that universe. In the first two minutes after the stats were announced, I got various people congratulating me and I sent various people congratulations for where they had appeared on the nomination stats. Um, This was before we'd actually read them. They released the full nomination stats, which for anyone who hasn't looked at them, are generally the rounds of EPH, which cover the top 15 nominees. They also do generally release the total number of ballots that voted in each, sorry, nominated in each category. We should say again what EPH is for the benefit of people who are new listeners. EPH is E Pluribus Hugo. It is the way of nominating for the Hugos, which is basically a system that kind of apportions your nomination points according to how many items you nominate and essentially it is an anti-slate mechanism that was instituted after the sad puppies and it works pretty well basically to dilute voting slates because it will reduce the total number of points for items that kind of come and sit together on people's ballots if you want a full explanation of EPH there's actually quite a good one in the 2022 Hugo nomination stats last year's ones which have A lot of extra information, helpful numbers, interesting stats, explanations of the voting process, in contrast to 2023s, which do not have any of that. Thank you, Nicholas and Kat. Yes. 
immediately upon opening the 2023 nomination stats, there are a few things that jumped out. The first is that there are a number of nominees who have enough points that you would expect them to be on the final ballot who are declared not eligible and no explanation is given. Those include Babel by RF Kuang in Best Novel, Ziran J. Zhao in The Astounding Award, Paul Weimer in Fanwriter, and the novelette Fogon Temple Pagoda by Haya. And Sandman. No, but Sandman is slightly different. Okay. So those are just declared ineligible and there's no reason given. There are items that are declared ineligible and there's a footnote that explains why, which include items that were not published first in 2022 and one that was removed because one of the authors on the Hugo subcommittee and they're declared ineligible. There's also a very weird thing with Sandman where it got enough votes to be on the ballot in both best short form and best long form dramatic presentation. But then one entry says not eligible because it is eligible in the other category and then the other category just says not eligible. So those things were missing entirely. I mean, there's a few there's a few people who declined nominations, which is you know normally there's a few, so that was not unexpected. Um, but yeah, there was no there was no explanation given for these. It is now evident from statements made by RF Kuang, Siran J Zhao, and Paul uh, Weimer and Neil Gaiman that they did not know that they had been declared ineligible and cannot think of any reason why they are ineligible. So they ruled ineligible. No one knows why. The, I think, predominant explanation from the internet is that they were ruled ineligible because someone on the committee, either because of overt messaging or just to cover themselves, felt that they would be not approved of in China and so decided to knock them off the, the finalist ballot. Has anyone got a better way of putting that? No, I think that's fair. I, I think that's our working assumption. I'd say that is our working assumption because we have no information. We have a tiny bit of information from a piece in PR2 where China did say that it would administer the Hugos in accordance with Wusfa's constitution and local laws, which people are reading the tea leaves of and saying that means we will censor anything we don't like, mm. which I think is not an unreasonable assumption. I think, I think that is the point where they told us they would, they would make these sorts of judgments. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. Yes, I mean, I was going to say if I want it doesn't it doesn't quite make sense to me because I'm not quite sure why you would single out exactly that set of finalists. I mean, some I can kind of understand. I mean, Babel certainly is written by an author born in China but now living outside China. People have noted other if that was the if that was a hard and fast rule, there are other finalists that would have been mysteriously ruled that weren't. So so yeah, yeah. There's a very good blog post by Ada Palmer, which I think we should link to in the show notes, where she talks about self-censorship and censorship and how how regime censorship works. And one of the impacts of that is that it's extremely inconsistent. So people have pointed out that Babel has a mainstream Chinese publisher, but it may just depend on what the particular person who decided that some some finalists had to be taken out was thinking on the day. Um, it doesn't need to be consistent because actually consistency is one of the things that comes with transparency, which we do not have here. I don't think we can speculate any better than other people have on the internet. We have no extra information. We don't really know anything extra. Just there are a set of nominees who were ruled ineligible and they should not have been by any ruling we can find if you're confined solely to the Wisfus Constitution. I think that is fair. There is definitely something happening here which goes above and beyond anything that has previously happened with the administration of this award and we'll get onto this in more detail in a minute anytime anyone asks the man who released the stats he just cites vague rules and does not elaborate because that was one of the things that someone asked on the anonymous claire discord was like you know how similar is this to previous things that have happened and i think the answer is very dissimilar so if you're relatively new to the hugos this isn't this is this is new yeah, I mean, I think there's been the occasional issue where eligibility has been got wrong or where votes have not been canonicised properly. And so stuff has been left off the ballot that should have been on or potentially been on the ballot that should not have been, especially for things where the eligibility is quite difficult to determine. But I don't think anything has just been not eligible when it clearly should be. There's also some issues with the ballot based on digging around in the EPH uh, point transfers. I'll point your transfer. That doesn't even make sense, John. It wasn't intended to, Liz. (laughs) 
So one one thing is that because of the way EPH works, every individual essentially gets one point that is split across everything nominated on their ballot. The practical effect is that the number of points of EPH should never exceed the number of people who nominated in a particular category. I checked the stats for the past four years and yes, the number of points never exceeds the number of people who nominated in a category. Uh, in 2023, in four categories, it does. I think it's just that the people nominating in 2023 were more engaged than previous years, Liz. Does that answer the question? No, you can't have something that sums to more than 100%. You can. You can give 110%, Liz. I've seen sports movies. Have you covered the ludicrous absolute nomination figures here? She's she's working on it. She's working on it. No, I'm I'm getting to them. I'm getting to them. The other issue, I mean, there's also some uh, strangeness in EPH in best related work in which the number of total points, which should always ever go down as stuff is removed, goes up again and then back down. It's weird. I mean, the other the thing is, those things are definitely there is no way under EPH these numbers can be correct. There are also things which are like, well, these numbers could be correct, but they're really weird in quite a few categories. There are very, very high numbers of nominations. I mean, and we knew the num- nomination numbers were high because they announced like the total number of nominating ballots. But that is explainable, right? Because you've just got a lot of members who are nominating. However, it's really weird when you have, for instance, in best series, like the top set of nominees all have over 800 nominations and then the next one has 50. Like it, it's this very weird pattern where the top ones have a huge number of nominations and then the number falls off. And this is most pronounced in like best novel and best series, but it's it's also there in quite a lot of a lot of categories like there's a lot of categories where the numbers just look a bit higher than you would normally expect i mean including fan cast like you know in theory according to these nomination stats octothorpe got 150 nominations which is almost as many as our number of regular listeners i think it's 125 so no but let me look it up so yes i will say that in 2021 when we were not on the ballot we got 20 nominations in 2022 when we were we got 46 and in 2023 we got 125 so that is a pretty like it is big jump probably a bigger jump than is possible it yeah it's true oh that's hard because we doubled from one year to the next year and if we doubled again we would have had 80 so 120 is like probably too many but it's not as too many as it might sound and probably doubling every year it might be better to assume 20 extra every year in which case like it would be 60 out i think the thing is in a lot of categories the top end was a bit higher than you would expect but like the bottom end is still low like if everything shifts up that's one thing but like the bottom end of fan cast like by the time you get to 15th nominee it's still like five nominations or whatever it's not like it pulled the whole thing up it's just the top and I would say the last thing is there's some of the redistribution of votes, uh, which is a bit strange. Basically, in EPH, you can see when someone is eliminated, where their, their who else's points totals go up, which means that they were on the ballot of some nominees together. Now, let me explain that in a better way. So in EPH, when an item gets eliminated it means that all the ballots with that item on will give slightly more points to the other items on that ballot. Basically, you get more power as stuff that was on your ballot was eliminated. And so you can see where the points go when any one you know, potential finalist is eliminated. And you can see in, in a lot of cases on this ballot where there is a mix of nominees from Chinese fandom and from Western fandom, you can see them kind of redistribute how you might expect when one of the Chinese nominees for best artist is eliminated their votes go to other Chinese nominees and mostly when one of the western nominees is eliminated their votes go to other western nominees but there's a few kind of strange examples where this doesn't happen there's one in in best novel the redistribution of the uh, nominations for a novel called the red stone which all seem to go to the mountain in the sea um, which was spotted by Camestros for Lapton. I should say also lots of people have spotted the errors in the kind of EPH and the weird distributions, including Marshall Mareska, Heather Rose Jones and Commissioner Flapton. And Jameson Quinn, who came up with the EPH system, is also looking at it on Blue Sky. But yeah, there's stuff like when David Pomerico is eliminated in Best Editor Long Form, none of his votes redistribute to any of the other American editors on the ballot. They all redistribute to only one Chinese nominee 
which is just a really weird pattern that you wouldn't expect, especially when, you know, the person who gets eliminated after him, their points transfer to nearly all of the, like, top... They're transferred to, like, six of the top seven left on the ballot. And then when this other editor gets eliminated, they all go in one direction, which basically... To the point where you can work out that, like, there must have been, like, 72 ballots that only had, like, these two editors on of the top 15. It's just a weird... It's just weird patterns. I spent a lot of time staring at figures and graphs in order to bring you this segment and i hope you now understand it's basically ETH. i mean I, this is going to show i don't understand it other than understanding the vibe but it's basically very similar to single transferable vote but for nominations instead of voting oh no oh no i think it is you have like you have your preferences and as they get eliminated your other preferences get redistributed but there's never a penalty in SDV for having multiple things on your ballot. There is, in theory, a penalty in EPH if you nominate five things and they all have sufficiently mm. low totals, they all get eliminated before you get to the later rounds. You'll never get anything on the ballot. Yeah, I guess that's true. I get the vibes, which is designed to be kind of fair and proportional and to never reward kind of runaway success. Yeah. From a vibe standpoint, yes, it has the same vibe quite like it from a vibe standpoint but i might be alone no i like it i think if that's a is that the summary of what we think has happened because i think it would be good to have a little bit of reaction here because i have a reaction i want to get in before we start talking about all of the implications i I think that is the summary in a very technical way you know and i could have stopped way earlier and just said look the stats look weird my reaction is as follows boo boo Boo! Boo! After I kind of started to look at the stats a little closer and realised they were all screwed up, it made me very unhappy because um, this was my first ever individual Hugo nomination after 40 years of FANAC. And it was, so it's really, it really sucks. It sucks to be a Hugo finalist this year, especially if you're in that sort of position. People have been calling for, well, why don't we rerun the awards or something? I don't think that's very practical. I don't think it's going to happen. I think it just sucks. And we now have a slightly a slightly tainted set of awards, which is a bit sad. And I think there's no way that can't take some of the joy away from, from the people who won and the people who were finalists. I want to say something here, which is so my... Espanio, my wife, was also a finalist and she is also very conflicted about that. I don't understand why the nominations were fiddled because they declared anything they didn't want to be on the ballot ineligible by magic anyway. So I don't really see why they went into the numbers. Like, if they were going to just do it by fiat, I don't understand why not just do it by fiat. And I will say, like, obviously, I think any finalist who was on the ballot prior to this year or prior to 2023 i should say like there there is a very good chance that they would have been on the ballot like in 2023 if they'd been on before so i think those people are probably less um conflicted um but if you're a first time finalist or the a first time finalist for a long time it must be very um very very sad my gut feeling is that i don't understand what the motivation for the fiddling is but my gut feeling is that like no one in the team had like a special interest in getting like Alison or Espana, for instance, onto the best fan artist ballot. And so I think that if and if the awards had been run the way they usually run, Alison and Espana would still have been on that ballot. It's but the thing is that the voice in my head telling me that's not true is way quieter for me than it is for someone who's in that position because I've had anxiety and I know how those little voices in your head work. And so it must really be horrible. And it's it's really annoying that it's tainted that whole thing. And you can't you can't take that taint away. Because it wouldn't be rerunning the awards, or it wouldn't be rerunning the voting, it'd be running rerunning nominations. And there's no way that people wouldn't nominate the things like, you know, Hispania's sad that she didn't make it on legitimately. So I'm sure lots of people would nominate her because they're like, fuck those people who made her feel sad, she deserves to be on the ballot. And so I, I don't there's no way you can go the only way to go back and have a fair hugo is to invent the time machine and we can't obviously do that i mean despite the fact that we've got one as referenced in episode 98 i can't remember exactly which one it was but i don't see a way of going back and having a fair process just go back to episode 98 and record a pickup john you have a time machine (laughs) 
But I will say, I think it's also notable that they released the voting stats a long time before the nomination stats. And that, to me, says that there wasn't a problem or there wasn't fiddling in the actual voting. And so I think if you were on the ballot and then you won, you got that win on that ballot. And I think if you are a winner, you should hold your head high and celebrate the fact you're a winner. Um, Christopher J. Garcia said it very well when he said the second Hugo he won, he won specifically because he was not a sad puppy and everything else in that category was a sad puppy and therefore journey planet got the hugo and he loves it just as much as the other hugo he has uh and i think that is a good attitude to take if you are a winner i think you are a hugo winner and you are just as much of a hugo winner as any of the other hugo winners and if hugo girl is listening definitely hugo girl because you know you deserve those rockets and display them on your mantelpiece proudly please like the one thing i would hate for this to do is to make those people feel like those rockets weren't worth what they're worth they don't they don't actually have the rockets you know we will be getting on to Dave McCarty's um, various talents as Hugo Awards administrator later, but that is foreshadowing. But it turns out shipping rockets to winners is not one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think the voting actually, the voting feels pretty consistent with the nomination stats being in some way inflated just to maybe up the total numbers. Yeah, there were some, there were some hinky things about the voting stats, weren't there? Well, there's just a lot of things that win in the first round, which is not necessarily hinky unless like there actually wasn't a huge amount of support for some of the nominees. But I mean, it is a different voting population and specifically like everyone from Chicago could nominate but not necessarily vote. But I mean, it's it's kind of weird when, you know, in theory, the Founders Trilogy had like 900 plus nominations. And yet when it came to the actual ballot, it came in sixth and in fact only had 313 people who put it above no award. It's, it's, it's kind of weird that something that was so high on the ballot did not have any actual, it didn't turn out to have any support at the voting phase. I would like to say two things, which is firstly, we know that where you place nominations or where you place the category aren't always one-to-one and the best example i can think of this is we discussed on a previous episode and god knows which year it was but the person who won best fan writer got on in sixth place and was quite far down in the raw number of nominations but eph bumped them up quite a bit but then they ended up winning the whole category and so if it's possible for someone who got by far the fewest raw nominations to end up winning presumably it's possible for the reverse to happen and we've seen that in fairly administered awards or awards i assume were fairly administered yes that's true the reason i argued i think the votes are solid is because i think if they weren't they would have come out at the same time as the noms the behavior of the hugo subcommittee makes me think the votes are unlikely to be rigged does that make sense it does make sense yeah Okay, so I think it is possible that there is inaccurate data in the voting, but it's clearly not as much. The inaccurate data, the reason the nomination statistics were further delayed was because of the, I I think, is because of the unexplained ineligibles. Because I think if it was just that the voting data was, the nomination data was corrupt and hinky, we'd probably have stopped, the row would have been much less... um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is I do think it was just they were so desperate to say the most nominees ever that they just dumped a load of erroneous nomination data in there, forgetting that somebody was going to look at it later. I think a lot of people didn't think that the nominating statistics got any, got much attention, um, which, you know, if they'd be paying attention, they would know that the nominating statistics always get a lot of attention. I think I agree with John in that I can't understand why you would... Like, if you're going to tweak the nomination stats, why don't you do it by just inventing a bunch of extra ballots and putting them into the system? But that would not explain why the numbers don't add up. So it's kind of weird that you're, like, I don't know. I think what I'm saying here is, if I was, like, faking some Hugo nominees, I would do a better job. (laughs) Liz in wants to fake Hugo's better controversy. So one of the explanations is that a standard form of protest in China is that you release something that is clearly nonsense as a way of protesting, because that's a form of protest that is often acceptable. I understand. And then nobody says anything because everybody knows that you don't say anything because it's China. And so we've had a combination of that form of I have released nonsense data because I know it is a form of protest against the repression and censorship combined with. But 
in in Western fandom in particular, everybody says everything because, you know, people do, thereby creating a storm. Do we want to segue from that to the reaction of Chinese fans? To go back to the thing of, like, did the people who did this not realise that the nominations would get quite a lot of scrutiny? Have they not been paying attention? There have been a lot of rumblings over the last few months that the Chinese people on the committee were not the fans that originally wanted to hold the Worldcon. And there is a letter in File 770, which was posted yesterday by a Chinese fan. Uh, and it's really interesting because that fan basically goes into some detail. But it is not our intention to defend the arrogant, haughty and insolent Dave McCarty, more on whom later. Yet, he, while he was the target for the most firepower, some bugbears masquerading as Chinese were stealthily making their way through the organising committee. They were never science fiction fans in the first place. They were not a part of fandom. A couple of media company executives have somehow gotten involved in the convention, taken over everything, including the Hero Wars, and used their few contacts in the media world to make a bid splash in the press and in government hospitality receptions. They then passed the job of external surrender to McCarty, who would bend over backward with small favours, and the job of internal repression to the Chinese workers who had to be forced into to surrender through the use of intimidation that's from a chinese fan that's and so i will say there's been quite a lot of debate and we will get on to this as to whether or not the reason dave mccarty has acted how he has was to try and protect the chinese people who were involved in this decision but i think that might have been quite a parochial perspective because certainly the chinese fans seem to be utterly fucking furious uh it, this is not just western fans applying different views of how it should work to a world con held in a different country the 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 chinese fans who we have reports from seem to be hopping mad about this so the question is who was dave mccarty protecting and the answer appears to be local functionaries the, the reason i read that out and the reason i wanted to do that before we get to dave is because i think that ties into if it was people from media companies who were involved with this and it wasn't the local fandom who might have been much more aware of the world con which is why they wanted to run one they wouldn't know right they wouldn't necessarily know the fanish traditions especially fanish traditions the other side of the pacific i had not put that together until you guys had that discussion but i think that might be right and certainly that seems to accord with stuff that's coming out of china itself yeah i think you might be right and also i think yeah if you end up with a group of people running the world con who you know are doing it because they see particular opportunities in it and not because they have spent 10 plus years really really wanting to run a world con and bring the hugo awards there then you might not realize and also i think it is in no previous year have i scrutinized the stats in quite this much detail i have never summed every column and row and tried to reconstruct individual ballots yes but nicholas white has i mean i think no but i think nicholas white nicholas white has produced stats which I am sure he has checked because he is a conscientious man. But I don't think external fans have ever dug in to the extent that we are digging in. I managed to reconstruct basically what the ballots must be for certain nominees. I mean, I've looked at transfers, but I've never tried to go, is this number actually explainable? Because we've kind of always trusted them to be so. And having checked like some retrospectively, they have been like that. So I guess you might have thought if you had like numbers that looked superficially pretty good and you wouldn't spot any errors unless you dug deep, 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 deep in, you might think it was okay. Can we move on to Dave McCarty? As soon as the Worldcon ended, Dave was asked where the nominating stats were and the voting stats and said they'd be out in due course. And then he kind of got into a big row with people. And the upshot of that row was he was like, we'll not we'll release them on the last possible date. And of course, the voting stats came out earlier, but the nominating stats did come out slightly after the last possible date. And at that point, Dave, I think, must have known that this was going to kick off quite a big row. And when people started asking him questions about it, he got stroppy. And I mean, not just a little bit stroppy. He was phenomenally rude to people. He was rude enough that it's been picked up all over the wider internet, not merely in our little corner of fandom. Um, it was as if all of these years of understanding how you do social media had vanished in a trace. And it was all right for Dave just to kind of tell people that they're stupid and not reading things properly and didn't understand what they were reading and could they now go away please and and all of that and I feel like this was a very very difficult and sensitive situation and Dave decided to make it a lot worse. He has since apologised and we will put a link in the show notes to the apology. 
he's apologised for his profoundly offensive behaviour when he released the stats, but he hasn't apologised for his profoundly offensive behaviour in China, where he posted multiple photographs of him whining and dining with Chinese with the Chinese local organisers, um, talking how, about how marvellous China was at every possibility, um, launching a new Chinese symposium or award or foundation or something where Dave McCarty was the only um, non-Chinese person involved and all of that stuff, which I feel is actually a much bigger deal. And he did all this at a time when he must have known that the data was profoundly corrupt and he did not at that point resign or consider resigning or do anything to indicate he was not happy with that process. But I think a lot of this makes a lot more sense if you think that Dave genuinely didn't think it would cause a big row or if it did, he could win the ensuing argument. He has said he genuinely didn't think it would cause a big row. He has said he thought he was only on his public Facebook post talking to the few people who had asked the questions, not realising that those few people were asking questions on behalf of, say, all the Hugo finalists. But I think that if I had been in his situation... Which you wouldn't have been because China would have come along and said, we're going to mess with these figures and you'd have gone, oh, I resign. Depending on when you find out, right? Like if they had said, we're going to do this... I might have resigned before that happened. If I had ended up in a situation where 90 days after the deadline, I have been merrily assuming the stats are all completely kosher and I do not know there has been any interference, which seems highly unlikely, but let's give him maximal benefit of the doubt here. If I got today, say I look at the stats at day 85 and I think, oh bugger, there's a real problem. The first thing I do is I start talking to people off the record saying, oh, bugger, there is a huge problem. I start trying to diffuse the situation. I What I don't do is 75 minutes before midnight in my time zone on the day where I have promised to reduce the stats, I don't post an RC comment about, oh, I think there's still over an hour left in this day, uh, and then miss the deadline I've set for myself due to my own incompetence. I don't do that. I, I, I don't do any of these things. And so there's there's obviously... And I don't think I'm the most competent man. I think I'm relatively competent, but I make mistakes all the time. I, I, I handle situations badly all the time. I don't think I've ever handled one this badly, but like... There's still time, John. There's still time. But both Alison and Liz can testify that I have had rows with them where I've not covered myself in glory. The fact that I can see how you would get out of this, or no, not how you would get out of it, but if I was in this situation, there is a way I would deal with it. Dave did not do that. For me to try to interpret his motivations is extremely difficult because he very clearly has extremely different motivations to me. And that makes it really hard for me to put myself in his head. And so this whole thing's really difficult because I'm like, well, you wouldn't do it like this. Like there's no decision I would have made at any point that would let us here. And I don't fundamentally don't understand why he made these decisions. And then we get on. Well, no, then we get on to Liz. Liz, you said not five minutes ago that if you fiddled the hugos you'd do a way better job um <laughs> <laughs> i'm never going to be hugo administrator i can't really I, I can't really fathom dave either except that i know like personality wise dave is much more argumentative than me and i can see so but i think hypothetically were i in dave's position where i had these stats and i had to release them because I promised to release them and they were going to look weird, I would just have released them, made the statement he made a few times that we followed all the rules and I can give you further explanation and then just stop there. Yeah, people are going to still debate it. People are going to still argue about it. But there's nothing you can add to this conversation here. You just have to stop and say these are the nominations. Yes, I think if I had been in Dave's position, which, as I said, I would not have been because I think that he has behaved in a I, I, he cannot have behaved in an honourable fashion throughout this process, um, I think is what I'd have to say. But if I were in that situation, I would channel Francis Urquhart. And if people said there's something dodgy about this, I'd go, you know, this is our statement. There isn't another statement. I understand that you might assume that something strange has happened, but I couldn't possibly comment. I mean, I would add, I think we've seen throughout the Chengdu process that they do not respond to random inquiries on social media. They do not put out a lot of press releases. They put out what information they want at the time they want, and they don't really engage with fans all over the internet asking them questions. And so, yeah, okay, if you're going to do that, why not stick with that? That at least would not result in everything going through, for some reason, the Facebook page of the Hugo administrator, where he has a big argument and insults a bunch of people. I, I want to pick up something that 
John said, which I think is very relevant here, which is he said, well, if I was in this position, I'd go and I'd make soundings off the record with people I trusted who could provide me with useful advice on how to manage the situation. I feel that Dave has been very isolated throughout this process, that that there is, he's not got a lot of help from people around him, even people around him who were engaged with China, but certainly not people around him who were not engaged with China. Now, that might be because he didn't ask for that help because because he, he thought he knew what he was doing. The one other thing I'd like to say before we get off Dave McCarty is to talk about Lenin's notion of the useful idiot, which is the Westerner that a communist regime uses um, in order to promulgate their ideas um, in the West and that you could do this by, you know, making life easy for them and they therefore think that maybe have a more favorable view of your regime than than an, an unbiased observer would i'm also going to say i'm also going to repeat something i said earlier and i'm going to link to a facebook post which is a public facebook post uh in our show notes with no further comment the chinese fan that i quoted earlier on in the episode I'm going to restate this, which is they passed the job of external surrender to McCarty, who would bend over backward with small favours. And then I'm going to post to a Facebook post made on the 23rd of October 2023 by Dave McCarty, which is a picture of lots of empty carrier bags with the text, I fit all the gifts in my luggage. I mean, I think there is also something we might be missing, which there can be like more of a gift giving tradition to guests that you are missing out on. Yeah, there's all sorts of things where, you know, I, you know, do a, a, a talk or a presentation somewhere and I am given like a mug, a branded mug or a notebook and a, a pen and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I'm sure there was definitely a lot of like, here are some Chengdu bits and pieces that we give to all our foreign visitors kind of thing. OK, shall we move on to the rest of the Hugo subcommittee? I think pretty briefly, yeah, because there were a bunch of people on the Hugo subcommittee including North Americans and Chinese people. Um, but Dave is the only one who ever made any public statements about the Hugos. I, I think Ben was off being co-chair and the other two people were essentially doing the, the administrative work of the Hugo team in North America. And I don't think we got any data from Chinese fans involved in the team at all. So, yeah, so the list of people is... Dave McCarty, Ben Yellow, Anne-Marie Rudolph, Diane Lacey, Shi Chen, Zhen Yu Jiang, Zhou Yao, Tina Wang, Dongsheng Gu, and Bo Pang. I, I will just comment that the actual uh, final stats are titled 2023 Final Hugo Stats Final Joe dot doc. So you can assume one, at least one other person read them along with Dave. It's this sort of forensic analysis, which is why we keep Liz around. At least it's not called Final Final to Final Final. <laughs> Hello everyone, it's John here with a quick pickup before we release the episode. On the 30th of January, which was Tuesday, Worldcon Intellectual Property released a statement announcing that Dave McCarty has resigned from the organisation. Uh, Kevin Stanley has resigned as chair of the organisation and Dave McCarty, Chen Shi and Ben Yellow have been censured for actions of the Hugo Administration Committee of the Chengdu Worldcon and Kevin Stanley has been reprimanded for public comments regarding trademarks. We plan to get to the trademark debacle next episode. Um, that was a conscious choice because there was a lot in this episode. And we will discuss the ramifications of the other actions in the next episode as well. So a lot of people have wondered what is Glasgow doing about all of this as Glasgow 2024 is this year's Worldcon. The first thing is that none of the people who were on the Hugo subcommittee in 2023 are working for Glasgow in any capacity. Ben Yellow was, but is no longer, and none of the others were on the staff at all, as far as I know. They have also announced that they will release the long list, the nomination statistics, immediately after the Hugo Awards, um, which is the traditional time it's always been released until this year. It's sometimes delayed by a little bit, but not much. And that they will announce eligible eligibility decisions and withdrawals from the award when the ballot is released. I think this is not a bad thing, but maybe some of you have differing views. Liz, this is your cue. Yeah, for once I am the person who really hates it and have strong feelings. Um, I think basically when you are coming with, up with proposals, 
proposals to try and make the Hugos more transparent, which I do approve of. I think you should be very careful to do it in a way that doesn't make the whole experience less fun for the Hugo finalists. And I think this will make it significantly less fun. Imagine that in, you know, they announce all the, all the finalists and at the end of this, they announce that like Anne Leckie withdrew her name from the ballot for translation state and that, you know, Anne Lee Newitz and Charlie Jane Anders withdrew for our opinions are correct. It's all hypothetical. But if I am a finalist at that point, what I really don't want is people going, ooh, I wonder which podcast was seventh on the ballot and only got on there because someone who was higher up withdrew or, oh, I wonder why, you know, this thing was disqualified from best novel. Let's have a debate about its eligibility. I don't mind having that debate, but I don't want to do it on exactly the day they say, oh, by the way, here are the actual Hugo finalists who should be having like their moment in the sun. That was much more reasonable than I hoped it would be. I was hoping for much more vitriol, Liz. I'm really, I'm quite annoyed by it. Is that vitriolic enough? I find it quite annoying. That's your version of quite annoyed. If you don't know Liz well, you don't know. But I could tell that that was Liz being pretty, pretty wound up about the whole thing. I am not as quick to anger as Dave McCarty, you said. And I was kind of thinking, well, John and I are not as quick to anger as Dave McCarty. We're a lot more quick to anger than Liz. (laughs) True, true. I agree that (laughs) i agree i think glasgow has done a good thing here in that i do think it would be nice to be able to know the eligibility especially before the voting like it has never quite made sense to me that we don't get the nomination stats before the voting um but i guess you want i guess you don't want them to affect the voting sorry i still think it would impact on the eventual voting very significantly if people knew which ones and got lots of nominations. A, uh, because humans are like that. They vote for things that they think are popular. Um, very well-known, very well-established effect over many years um, in social sciences. But also, um, people will start their reading from highest nominations first in many cases. So that will also skew the voting. So that that is a good argument. There is an argument for releasing the whole shebang after the ballot is out, but before the final result, after the ballot is closed, but before the final results. But then you just have the fact that people will sort of go, oh, such and such won, but such and such had more nominations. Well, you have that. You have that anyway. If I'm honest, I wouldn't release the Hugo stats because I find it really exhausting that the first thing we do as soon as we know who won is debate all of the framework of that rather than just celebrating their win which i think is exactly the same problem liz is having with the joy of the nomination i i think part of the reason i'm not angry at this is because the hugos already does this so it doesn't seem like a massive change (laughs) like and actually (laughs) if we're going to have this argument i think having it after the nominations come out is way better than having it after the winners way better but i am i am not a hugo stats wonk i am also going to channel the younger people who are not us, apparently, but because I'd have said, well, 20 years ago, you might be right about the withdrawals and and not so much in eligibility, but the withdrawals. But nowadays, all sorts of people recuse themselves all of the time in public at various different times before, during and after the nominations are released. And it's just not such a big thing as it was 20 or 30 years ago when it was pretty rare. Um, I just don't think it, I don't think people are really going, oh, it's the best fanzine that's not answerable. From my perspective, next year, I will know that Hugo Girl has recused. And so if they get enough nominations, they will have declined. And I'm not sure I mind. But I can see, like, I wouldn't have a problem with them releasing the stats like two weeks after nominations. I, ca- I can see the point that um, that doing it straight after is a bit mean. But then I was not one of... I was annoyed when Dave said he'd take 90 days. But when it looked like it might be a week, I was not at all concerned. Um, so I wouldn't mind there being a week gap between these things. A week to let the nominees or the winners settle in. And then you crack on with the analysis. That, that, that. In general, that would seem good from both perspectives to me, and I think it would address your concern, Liz, but I don't know, you might hate it. I'm surprising myself by saying this here, but I would actually get behind the full voting and nomination stats being released like a week after the ceremony, because you're right, there are people who don't like having them there right at the time, and in a normal year, I don't think the week would make much difference, except I'd probably be at home and could dig into the stats more, rather than doing it, you know, during the Hugo Losers party. 
what I can see is that if you wait a week or two to release the names of those who declined or were deemed ineligible, then you have to wait open voting because part of the point of this is so that if there has been an error, you can see it and correct it. I think in general, I understand why Glasgow has taken the line they have with all of their reaction to this. I think one of the lessons that a lot of the people involved with Chengdu should have learned is that maybe less is more when it comes to commentary. And I think Glasgow waiting to see how certain things pan out before having a response was wise. They still haven't issued like an explicit statement as far as I know. They have they have said how they're going to administer the Hugo Awards, but they haven't like made an official statement on the brouhaha, which might or might not be wise. I can see there's a logic to waiting until certain things have died down. I'm not sure everything has died down yet, so I could kind of see that. But I think in general, Glasgow seem to be trying very hard to do the right thing and not add fuel to the fire. And I think in general, I applaud that. I feel that as so, as people who do a fortnightly podcast, this is quite good for us because we. I feel this podcast has been very different from the one that we'd have recorded the day after the Hugo nomination stats came out. Yeah, I mean, there is a ton of stuff we have not touched upon at all. I think there's more to be said on, you know, how should... Worldcons react to the actions of previous Worldcons. How connected are we? How does it all connect to Wusfus, which actually can't really do anything in between actual Worldcons? We're going to end up getting again into issues of Worldcon governments and the business meeting, but we can postpone that for at least a couple of weeks. I Yes, I think one of the things we'll be picking up in a future episode is some ways forward for Wusfus and what it might want to do about it. And But we are not the only people who have thoughts on this, so... Things are probably still happening in this space all over the place. Liz, you've probably read a book or something. I mean, I have. Um, So I'm actually going to nominate for my pick this week a book that I read in December. So it's not super fresh in my memory, but actually it has stuck with me since December. And therefore, I think it is worth mentioning. So I'm going to pick a book called The Reformatory by Tanana Reevedu, which is a horror novel. Um, it's set in kind of Jim Crow, Florida. And it, it's about a young black boy called uh, Robbie, you know, has like a minor altercation with a white youth and ends up being sent to reform school. It's, it's heavily based on a real reform school that existed uh, during the 1950s. If you've read um, The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead, it's kind of very similar backstory to that. And so obviously this was, you know, a deeply, deeply unpleasant place to be sent. But the, the, the twist it do puts on it is that Robbie essentially can see supernatural figures, can see these ghosts or haints, um, as they call it. And of course, there are a lot of ghosts in in this school, which has been a site of, of, of murders and like other horrific goings on for many, many years. And so the book is all about Robbie and his like interactions with these ghosts and how he sort of survives at reform school, but also about his older sister who is like working to get him out. It has a lot of quite dark passages. It isn't entirely, you know, it is quite a difficult read in places, but it's also very uplifting because I think a lot of Robbie's seeing ghosts is not a terrible, terrible thing. Seeing ghosts in some ways is something that allows him to feel the presence of his uh, dead mother. These ghosts are just boys, some of them who are at the reform school, who he forms relationships with. And I think this, this, the plot strand of the sister is also really interesting because she is trying to work to get him out in this system. And so she ends up kind of working, again, with a lot of kind of white or not black people in the, in the South who all are trying to be allies, but often doing it in a very imperfect way. She talks to, to, to black lawyers who are helping her, but often they have their own agendas and their own ways they want to do things that are not necessarily immediately getting her brother out of reform school. I think it kind of has a really a really nice spin on this story, which is a little bit similar to The Whitehead, but balances really nicely what was is a very grim story with also the relationship between families and found families and people in the community and how they pull together or don't in these situations. Um and I really I really enjoyed it. It's also twenty twenty three book. And therefore eligible for the 2024 Hugo's. I have discovered, and actually this will come up in my pick, but I really enjoy basically any art that puts me in the shoes of 
places that I can only kind of academically understand, but I can't emotionally understand. Like, I understand that Jim Crow Florida was a bad place, but reading a book with characters set in that place will be really interesting because because it will actually force me to like emotionally relate to it in a way that I might not otherwise. So I am. This is a very interesting pick. This is one of the reasons that I like reading books and consuming other media that was produced in the past. Because if you go far enough back, people people cannot help but fill everything. Fill no matter what topic they're writing about, their worldview comes over all of the time in everything in a way that does. I find for, for me, I find that very immersive often, or. Uh, even when it's not immersive, it's like, oh, wow, people really did think differently. Yeah, and I, w- I would say this one, it kind of really does get you emotionally into that mindset of people who are continually aware of kind of how much a lot of their neighbours either overtly dislike them or like them up to the point where they are the, the helpful, helpful black neighbours, but they will only go so far. Yeah, so it, it is quite emotional. It does get very tense at times when Robbie is trying to balance his responsibilities to certain to try and get through things in the reform school but also get justice for the the ghosts of the boys who have been killed there is really quite tense all right Liz I'm buying it all right I'm already too behind on my pledge to read all of your picks this year but you know I will continue trying Liz this book's 182,000 words long is it yeah sorry Liz likes long books (laughs) No, I don't like long books. I hate long books. I often call books way too long. Liz loves long books and she cannot lie. You other brothers can't deny. So I remember feeling this book is quite long, but I don't remember it feeling like super duper over long. But I also like read it while I was on holiday. And so you would be times when I would otherwise be just sitting around doing nothing for four hours in an airport. So I'll pick some short fiction next time. How about that, John? Thanks, Liz. Appreciate it. Let me let me help you catch up, John. Because my pick, I said I can't really do pick this week because we've got no time. And literally the only things I've consumed in the last week are print and play games and back chat about the Hugo Awards. And uh, my pick is in the former category here, which is a game called Dangerous Space. And it is a print and play roll and write um, where you have a single sheet of paper and you play on that. But they sell you lots of different sheets of paper for a very small amount of money. You could get, I think, the first four and they're kind of mix and match. This is a science fiction adventure where you have a a character who is trying to infiltrate a spaceship and do some things like rescue some people or whatever and things are trying to stop them and your your goal is to get out so you can mix and match people and ships i may have mentioned dungeon pages last year which is a was a kind of fantasy version of this but this is the science fiction version i think we're getting 52 sheets one a, one a week for the whole year if we have the more expensive version of this which i do i played one really early on when they had not quite um, worked out what rules they wanted. And in fact, due to interventions from various people, including one John Coxon of this parish, they massively improved the rule set. So does it's much easier to play, I think, than it was when it first came out. And it is it is great. It takes about 15 or 20 minutes to play a sheet and you can play it perfectly well on the iPad. And the whole thing's fabulous and really very charming in its way. And it won't cost you very much money. And unfortunately, this is 2024 art, so it will be eligible for the Hugos in 2025. But Dungeon Pages is eligible. Vote for that, which is their fantasy one. I have indeed. um, So I also I backed this on Kickstarter because I also played Dungeon Pages. Um, It's worth noting that the core set and the year long adventure are different products. So if you buy the year long adventure, you don't get the core set. But um, but they're like not expensive. Get both. But no, it is. I do enjoy it. And I have already played it. So that is great from both perspectives. I realised I should probably explain what a roll and write is, which is it's a game where you roll dice and move around and fill in squares on a map. I'm going to pick uh, The Kitchen, which is I don't know what its eligibility is. It was a, it was premiered at the BFI London Film Festival in October 2023, but it wasn't released in cinemas uh, in the UK until January 24. 
It is the directorial debut of Daniel Kaluuya. So you may know him from Get Out. He was the lead in Get Out, which is a very good movie, which you've heard me talk about before. And he has made a movie about dystopian London in the sort of near future. It's kind of about the disconnect between private landholders and social housing and communities and the money in the land they occupy. Um, I think you could probably pick holes in some of the world building, but the central emotional journey of the movie is so fantastic. And what the movie has to say, what the movie has to say about the way London and other cities are evolving is, is so relevant that I am inclined to uh, not dwell on it too much. So yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And then we went to, there was an exhibition of the costumes from Poor Things at the Barbican. So we went to the Barbican, which is also where a lot of the kitchen was filmed especially the bits in the funeral home is probably the best way to describe it which were filmed in the conservatory at the barbican so we went and had a look at that uh, while we were there for the costumes from poor things and the barbican's fabulous like it just looks like the future that was the Oct thought podcast and it's goodbye from me it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me All these, all these names have been majestically mangled, so I wouldn't worry about it. Chinese listeners, write in. Yeah, Chinese listeners, please write in to John and explain at great length uh, tonal languages with examples. And IPC. Not IPC, IPA. IPA is a type of beer. I know about that, Liz. Come on. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.